Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast, your favorite podcast where we unpack the wildest Genesis stories and break down the most interesting topics in plain English. And as you've guessed by this title, this one is no exception. This one is crazy with my guest, Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee. You may have seen Dr. Laurie on Channel 4's Open House, The Great Sex Experiment. Dr. Laurie Beth travelled all the way from up north in Scotland to Glasgow to be interviewed in the hot seat by me in the Green Room Studios. Hold on to your seats as we dive into the world of Dr. Bisbee's life exploring the psychology of sex. She takes us on a rollercoaster ride of personal experience and professional insight. Join us as we explore the psychology of kink and fetish. Yes, you heard that right. And you'll discover why it makes some folks squirm in their seats when they hear this stuff. Curiosity, shame and anxiety will be on the menu. But fear not, Dr. Bisbee is the master of creating a safe space to talk about topics like this. It's a sexual education that you wish you had. Dr. Laurie Beth is the best person to unpick this topic. She's a rock star psychologist, sex and intimacy coach and accredited advanced GSRD therapist. And she's here to spill the saucy secrets of the psychology of what you and I hopefully do every single day. Prepare to be blown, pardon the pun, away by the impact Dr. Bisbee has. Her talks give standing ovations and tears of gratitude. She really does have a superpower to unlock the true potential of this topic. And as a disclaimer, we do talk about sexual topics throughout this entire episode. And that may trigger some people. In this episode, we cover all things sex drive and where it stems from, all things gender, differences when it comes to attraction, AI and sex robots and what the future of sex might look like. We unpack polyamory and non-monogamy. We look at the intersection of kinks and trauma. We describe terms such as fetish and kinks and why facials do not boost sexual esteem contrary to flawed research that we go into. Again, disclaimer for the sexual content laced throughout. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's perhaps one of the most esoteric ones that I've ever recorded. I am really, really proud of my hosting abilities during this podcast because I was ashamed, I was embarrassed, I was anxious to talk about a topic such as this. And now I'm using this platform to present an insight into a topic that is not commonly discussed. I really hope you appreciate my versatility and you go on to share this episode with your friends and family and those who might want to delve into this world of sex and psychology. And before we do that, I want to give a huge shout out to this week's sponsor, New Life MMA Gym in Maryhill in Glasgow and M23 Mental Performance. David Gilbraith, pro MMA fighter who owns both of these businesses, aims to bring the most out of human optimization, both physically and mentally, from a grassroots level in the city of Glasgow, based in Maryhill. If you want to start a new sport, get into combat fighting, whether it's BJJ, wrestling, boxing, Muay Thai, kickboxing, stand-up striking, or all of them in terms of MMA, head down to New Life Gym. And if you also want to sharpen your mind as much as you want to sharpen your body, look at his M23 mental performance. And of course, my friends over at Vibe have sponsored another episode. If you're looking for a delicious and convenient way to stay fueled throughout the day, look no further than Vibe, the complete meal shake that's taken the world by storm. You can get this in every corner of the world. With Vibe, you can enjoy all the nutrients your body needs in one easy-to-drink shake. Made with the highest quality ingredients and available in a range of delicious flavour, Vibe is the perfect solution for business professionals, fitness enthusiasts or anyone looking for a quick and healthy meal on the go for as little as £1.50 a serving. 
Whether you're looking to maintain a healthy weight, build muscle, or simply fill your body with the nutrients it needs on a daily basis, Vibe has you covered. I use it every single day for breakfast, accompanied with their greens powder, their brain care smart greens, mango flavor, I love it. And with their subscription service, you can have your favorite flavors of both products delivered right to your door on a regular basis. So you don't have to worry about running out ever. You can even add in some of their lion's mane's mushroom. So why wait? Try Vibe today and discover the delicious and convenient way to stay fueled throughout the day. Visit vibe.co.uk to learn more and place your order today using code D by D for 15% off at checkout site-wide. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for, the crazy, the kinky, the wonderful Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee. Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee, welcome to the Development by David podcast in the Green Room studio in Glasgow. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Happy to be here. I... Always ask the same first question on this show. I asked you to bring to life who you are, but I've had the privilege to have dinner with you tonight over some sushi at Pickled Ginger. But for the listener's sake, how would you describe who Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee is today in 2023? God, that's really difficult. <laughs> um, so I am a psychologist, um, a an accredited advanced gender, sex and relationship diversity therapist, which basically means that um, I work with people who are LGBTQ Plus, um, and with people who have alternative relationship styles, including people who are non-monogamous and people who are um, kinky or into BDSM as a priority um, on their sex and relationships. Um, I'm a sex and intimacy coach, an author, a podcast host, and um, TV personality is what I'm told. (laughs) I'm the specialist relationship therapist for Open House, The Great Sex Experiment which is on Channel 4. We were just speaking about your verification on Google. They've not recognized you for all these amazing other feats, but finally, maybe because you're on TV, you've been recognized by Google. <laughs> it's ridiculous because I do a lot of speaking and um, and I've written, and I've written professionally, not just um, I've written for the public, but I've also written academically. And um, I don't get, you know, I never got verified or recognized for anything, but about, I guess it was about a week ago, <laughs> a friend of mine put my name into Google and the info panel came up on the right, the knowledge panel, which I've never had with my name. And all of a sudden it said, Lori Beth Bisbee, television person, TV personality. And I was just like, excuse me. Um, And so then you have the opportunity to claim your knowledge panel, which I did. And so they verified me. So apparently that's what I'm now known for. (laughs) I've got a real TV celebrity coming through from Perth to visit me. I was saying to you before we kicked off, I love using this podcast as my own personal curriculum, but also to shed awareness of different stories and different insights and uh, topics, especially for those who don't typically have access to this type of information. As a podcast host, I'm a confident young young man. I'm, I must be to have this podcast. And I, I, I came and visited your talk at the Glee Club, Seed Talks, um, The Psychology of Kink and Fetish. And even though I'm so so confident outwardly facing, I still felt this sense of anxiety or perhaps shame to come to a talk that I was deeply curious about. Do you find that a lot of people that attend your your uh, professional talks feel the same way? I think there's still a huge taboo around fetish and kink. And so coming out in public and admitting you're interested is tantamount to saying that this is something about you, which it doesn't necessarily mean. There are a lot of people who come along who are interested, who are not kinky at all. They just want to understand the topic, but they 
but they do come along. And so people are often a little bit embarrassed and a bit shy about being there. And I'm unfortunately um, one of those speakers. I refuse to just lecture. So I open it up to the audience really quickly. And, and oftentimes the first thing I have is crickets. You know, <laughs> Eventually I get somebody who will say something and then then the whole dynamic of the talk changes. But it's it's I think it's still really taboo just to talk about sex, period, in public. You know, people watch it on television, but to actually come into a venue and engage with somebody on this topic, I think, is still incredibly taboo. Which is bizarre because we all do it or we all want to do it. So everyone in that room has done it or wants to do it. But Absolutely. they still feel a sense of social anxiety around that. Well, we don't, you know, we don't educate. We don't have appropriate sex education. Um, and in fact, we're going backwards right now. Um, I so. It, I mean, not there's been protests in England recently about what's on the sex education um, curriculum um, and, and why it's inappropriate to talk about gender, for example, um, which is crazy. I mean, right now, what kids should be learning from a very young age is enough information for them to feel OK about themselves. That's the purpose of having sex education young is because kids develop at different rates. Um, we're actually all sexual beings from the time we're born. Um, and people get freaked out about that, but it's the truth. Um, and so when you get to sort of five, six years old, you're really thinking about your gender because that's when you're being taught about it and you're really thinking about it. So to not see yourself reflected and to feel other is problematic and it sets up for problems later on. So age appropriate, and I do emphasize age appropriate information is important from that young all the way up through until people go through A-levels. And yet right now we're focusing on what we don't wanna see again and not giving decent wide ranging information. Um, in America, it's even worse, that's going backwards at, at a vast rate with legislation being made where you're not allowed to talk about things in the, in the classroom. In Florida, if you are not heterosexual, you're out of luck. There's no information for you in school at all because it's all been struck off the curriculum, even all the way up through high school. So it's, it's insane that we still make a natural human function so terribly taboo. One, one thing that I found almost heartbreaking about your talk was that it took you to your 40s to feel normal or to embrace your true self. Yeah. Why did it, I thought this kind of new age would be more progressive than, uh, because of because of TikTok, because of social media, because of representation online, they have more access to kind of role models in this space. But I, I was really heartbroken to hear how long it even took you, the, the, the doctor in such field to become so, so comfortable being normal and being yourself. Well, you have to remember that I grew up before all of that. There was no internet. I mean, I grew up in the dark ages. You know, we had no internet. Um, if you were kinky, and people ought to understand that most of us have a, a pretty good idea of our sexuality when we hit puberty. And so that means that for people who identify as kinky as opposed to people who just add kink in to their sex life, and there's a difference. What is the difference, can I ask? So... My sexual orientation is based around my kink. So I um, am turned on by power. Power is the thing that's important to me. Um, and so I don't, I'm not turned on by people who aren't dominant. They can be as pretty as you like. 
And they can be whatever gender. And they can be whatever gender. Yeah. Um, and But a person can be as pretty as you like. And if they're not dominant, there will be no spark for me. And I knew that from the time I was very young. Um, I didn't have words for it. I couldn't have explained to you what exactly it was I liked, but I knew what I liked and I knew enough to be able to get somebody to do what I wanted. Um, but there were no words there for me at that time. And there was no internet to find other people like me. So I thought I was the only one. Um, and when I started out there looking for partners, finding partners was very difficult. You were taking a big risk every time you you mentioned what you were into to people. So while I accepted some of my kinks very early on, um, I wasn't fully comfortable just being myself in public until I was in my 40s because there was such a taboo around being who you were um, and mentioning stuff like that in public could get you banned in all sorts of places. So why mention it? When you started to embrace your true self and your preferences, what did that unlock for you both personally and sexually? Well, I mean, so I was already acting in that way, um, personally and sexually, but when I decided I was just going to live full time like this, you know, I had I finally made better choice in partners, which is actually a separate issue. People don't know how to choose partners. So that's something that people need to learn about. Um, but I finally made a decent choice in partner and I'm polyamorous. So the, the first partner in my group of partners I chose when I was 45. Yeah, I was 45. Um, and it was just comfortable to be able to be amongst a group of people where I could just be me. And so I started going to events, mostly in the United States because of the kind of work I was doing here. I didn't, it would have been awkward. Um, to run into clients places. So I would go to events in the United States and I could just go and I was just me. Um, and being able to live like that and being able to be in the relationship full time and not have to have it be something that was episodic was amazing. It was just, it took a lot less energy and it gave me energy. So it took a lot less energy because you're not having to hide bits of yourself. Um, you're not having to constantly tamp bits of yourself down. And you gain energy from doing the things you love. So that's been amazing. But also I chose a man who, whose understanding of um, BDSM and of mastery is incredible. He really understood, for me, the importance of polyamory and what I needed. So I now have um, four relationships that suit me down to the ground. And lest somebody think that's easy for a man who's dominant sharing like that is usually not an easy thing, but he does um, because it's what I need because that's what I need. So my needs came first and, and that has been an amazing thing. That's been absolutely incredible. Um, and it's something I think that again, we don't talk about, we don't talk about when we talk about non-monogamy, you'll hear a lot about what's popular these days. Talk about all relationships need to be equal but all relationships aren't equal. Um, and there are people who practice power exchanges and that's by its nature hierarchical, which means that when you have relationships, polyamorous relationships, where one of the relationships is hierarchical, invariably there are gonna be some differences rather than having everything be, be equal. Um, so it's complex. And so it's it needs talking about instead of just very 
what I see is a lot of very just general basic stuff thrown out without talking about the skills that you need underneath to make any of this work. Could I, for the listener's sake, understand what polyamory and open relationships and non-monogamy might mean in okay. plain English? So non-monogamy is the umbrella term um, for relationships in which you have more than just one partner and one partner right? More than just two people. So if you're monogamous, you find that person and that's it. They're your person and you're their person. And you agree to be sexually at least only with them. Oh, you often agree to be romantically only with them as well. Um, non-monogamy is when, and this is consensual non-monogamy is above board. Everybody consents. Sometimes people call it ethical non-monogamy. There's a variety of reasons why that's not the best way to, to, frame it. I prefer consent because it makes it obvious what's necessary. Um, but consensual non-monogamy means that everybody agrees. So this is all above board that you can have more than one partner, more than one sexual partner, possibly more than one romantic partner. So an open relationship is usually, although it's used as a general term, is usually means that you're a couple and you have additional sexual partners. That can run from very occasionally having additional sexual partners to having full-on relationships. Polyamory is multiple love relationships. So it's not just sex, it's also the romance. Can you cheat or perform infidelity within these relationships? Of course you can, because everything is about agreements. So if you have an agreement with your partner that says, for example, um, no sleeping with people that you work with. That can be an agreement that people make. It's a smart agreement. Sleeping with people you work with is not usually a good idea because if it blows up, then your situation at work is uncomfortable. So fine, that could be the agreement. And um, say you have that agreement with your partner and you go out on a work due and you end up in bed with one of your workmates, you've just cheated because you've broken that agreement. Um, because that's all cheating is. It's, a, it's breaking an agreement. And usually it's not the sex that's the problem. It's the broken agreement that's the problem. It's the broken trust that's the problem. Are some people often almost punitive in their agreements? People can be. Um, I encourage people when I see them not to be um, because those things don't work out long-term. Imagine. I want to take it back to you. And your education in your upbringing, where was the seed planted for this field of expertise? Where was that planted so for you? So I, um, I had a hugely traumatic event. So I knew who I was from when I was young, as I said. Um, and when I finally got out in the world and I was seeking partners, my first proper partner, BDSM partner, um, was a psychopath. Um, so I ended up in a hugely traumatic situation where I'd given my consent, but I withdrew consent and he didn't care. Um, and it ended with me putting him in jail. That was my first foray. Not a great um, introduction to what this kind of relationship might be like. Um, and so from there, I ended up with post-traumatic stress and I shifted what I was studying in school, which at the time was broadcast journalism. I, was, I, I, I liked being in the media and doing things like that. I shifted to start studying psychology which isn't unusual. A lot of times when people have had experiences that require the intervention of a psychologist, that will be the impetus to go into the field. 
Um, and I was primarily studying um, trauma was my main area of interest. But my secondary area of interest was any kind of sexuality that wasn't usual. And that's because when I went to see people to talk about my experience while I was trying to get rid of my symptoms, the problem would come in if I talked about what it was that I liked because they, they didn't understand or they thought that that was a problem in and of itself. So instead of just um, another expression of sexuality, which is how it's viewed now, it's just one of the myriad ways that we can express our sexuality. It's not considered um, abnormal or something that needs to be treated. Instead of looking at it that way, it was, well, this must be your problem. Your problem is you like dominant people and that's what's getting you in trouble. So let's try to change the fact that you like dominant people, which doesn't work. It's like, let's try to change the fact that you're gay. That doesn't work, right? So that didn't work. So the focus then became on me and my bad desires, which wasn't helpful. Um, and so I found it very difficult to find somebody to work with that actually could hear my experience and not make that judgment. Um, and so that was one of the reasons for me doing work in this field was wanting to provide a space where people weren't going to be automatically judged on their preferences. Um, and that gave us the leeway when there was a problem with a preference to actually look at it in a more rational way instead of making an automatic assumption about what the issue was which is pretty much how I ended up doing this. And when I had the therapy in which I got rid of my PTSD, one of the features of that therapy was that they didn't really care. They didn't judge anything you told them. So I could bring up everything and I did. Um, and it was necessary to do that in order to be able to work my way through the things that triggered me. Um, but there wasn't a response to that or a negative response to that. And there wasn't an unusual focus on it. So it gave me some of the tools that I used with clients to be able to work with them without this sort of shock and horror. You, the one thing you don't want to see on your therapist's face is shock, horror, and disgust. Yet none of that's helpful. How has the appetite for your work changed over the last 30 years? Are you busier now than ever before, or has it always been in such high demand? I mean, I've always been in high demand because I have kind of two interesting specialties. So... Um, so when I've been doing client work, I've always been in high demand. Um, there are certainly far more people coming with sexual problems these days than there were when I first started out that are sexual problems that are about their orientation or their interests or their desire, as opposed to sexual dysfunction, which is where a lot of people that I know focused. Um, you know, so they focused on things like, you know, um, anorgasmia where people couldn't have orgasms or um, erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation, things like that, which are um, vaginismus, all of these, which have some physical parts to them. Whereas my focus has always been around desire and, um, and, and the ability to accept your desires and, and enact your desires and relationships and relationship style. So I think that's definitely a divergence. There's many more people coming and looking at desire now. They're not going to the doctor's office and saying there's something wrong with me. Instead, they're going to somebody who specializes in this kind of stuff and saying, is there something wrong with me? Instead of there is, it's like, is there or is this okay? Or what do I do about this? I'm glad there's been that positive transformation almost. When I was at your 
uh, talk at the Glee Club. But like you said, people started off, it sounded like there's crickets in the room and they slowly warmed up to you. And the climax, pardon the pun, was like a standing ovation. You were given such a huge round of applause. It was so great to see how meaningful that was to so many people because you made them feel safe and feel heard and accepted. Does that feel like a huge responsibility to hold for you? It is. I mean, it's 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 wonderful. I'm not. I'm, I'm quite awkward when. I mean, you know, when I get an ovation, I'm actually quite awkward still. You deserve. Um, it. You know, it's different. It's different if I'm doing something like um, a show, um, a television show, and I've done a piece of work on television, or um, I've done little bits of acting in the past, and like if I do something like that, it's different. It's like that's the expectation. And then, you know, you take a bow in it, but I'm quite awkward with stuff like this. Like, I don't know whether I should take a bow or just, you know, <laughs> I just can't turn it on my head. Um, it does feel like a huge responsibility. I've created, um, my main job as a therapist is to create a, a safe space. That's like job number one as a therapist. Um, and you'd be surprised how many people don't know how to do that. It's amazing to me, but that's, that's something I'm incredibly good at. And I'm, I'm actually good at it in large groups of people, in large public groups of people too. That was evidence of that. So I've accomplished my main goal, which is to create that safe holding space for people so that they can be present and listen. They're not in their anxiety the whole time. Um, and so they can see themselves reflected somewhere in what I'm talking about so that they feel heard. Um, and that to me is a huge responsibility because if that's all they get, it's it's a huge change for many people who have never felt seen and never felt heard. Do you have any examples of how that's that's transformed into people's day to day lives? Have you had any case studies or examples or messages back where people's entire lives have been transformed because of that feeling of feeling heard and safe? I mean, I accepted? I've had I mean I have that in in various environments where that's the the feedback. Um, I mean, one person who was saying that um, it had changed his entire life to have somebody just listen to what he said and not judge him for what he said. Um, and he actually spoke up in a group, which was awfully brave. Um, and, you know, nobody was laughing and nobody was making fun of him and nobody was shocked or horrified, or at least they weren't showing it because the space was such where, where everybody knew that that wouldn't be acceptable. You know, that that you needed to be attentive and just accept what somebody was saying. Um, and for him, it just made him feel like a whole person again. He said, you know, he stopped feeling like he needed to push that part of himself away. Um, so that was pretty impressive. I've had other people say that it's given them the courage to actually go and seek therapy. Wow. Um, or to talk to a partner. Um, so it it's... Feeling safe in a space and not judged is a huge thing. And a lot of people don't understand what that's like because they're not marginalized in any way. And so if you're not marginalized in any way, you probably take for granted that you're safe in a space and that you can speak your mind and you're not going to have any negative outcome to it. But if you're marginalized, you know that that's not the case. Um, and people don't realize that people with sexual deviance is what it was called, but with sexualities that are outside um, the everyday, they're marginalized. You may not know it because you're not, you're not going to see it. It's not, you don't see a skin color. Um, it's not something obvious that they're talking about. You can't walk into a room and see how diverse it is in terms of sexuality like that. Yeah, you can't. So, you know, 
they're marginalized. They're just marginalized in a way that can be hidden. And so finding yourself in a space where you're no longer marginalized, where you're just accepted for who you are is a big deal. I really saw that in the room that evening. I had a smile on my face during the Q&A session because there were some people there who were sharing what could be seen from the outside in such outlandish confessions. And I just was wondering, like, how long is... Has that question been suppressed? How many months, if not years, have they been suppressing this in the day-to-day lives, whether in the workplace or with their, their, their kind of peer group? And I had a huge sense of pride for the people in the room, but also for you for um, garnering that safe space. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, there was there was at least one person who brought something up that they had never brought up, brought up in public ever. And they confessed to it as well. Yeah, and um, and that was absolutely amazing. And nobody reacted badly. Like nobody, not a single person in the audience. There wasn't a guffaw. There wasn't anything. Everybody was totally cool, which was absolutely amazing because that was really risky. I put a smile on my face. Could I, for the listeners sake, kind of delve into some of the topics and themes sure. and jargon that I heard on, on that talk? Absolutely. So Dr. Laurie, how would you describe sex drive? So when we talk about sex drive, we talk about libido. That's your desire for sex. That's the energy that you're putting towards sex. That's how much you want it. So it's not how much you do it, really. It's really more how much you want it. Um, And it's not a given. You know, people think it's a given. People, particularly if you speak about young men, for example, that's something that people are like, oh, yeah, they always want to have sex. Not so. Not so. Sex drive varies for a lot of reasons. Um, it can vary depending on mood. It can vary depending on medication, it can vary depending on hormones and hormone changes. Um, it can vary depending on diagnosis. For example, people with depression don't tend to want a lot of sex. Are there any differences in terms of gender differences in terms of how sex is expressed? I mean, so I think these days it's really hard to make firm gender categories. I think certainly traditionally we would have talked about men being more active and and women being more receptive, but that's gone out the window. So, um, and, and also because we're talking about a wider variety of gender now, it's really difficult to be talking about um, the different ways in which sex is expressed. We do know that um, testosterone figures in, in sex drive for all genders. Um, One of the things that people don't realize is that People with female bodies also, their ovaries also spark the production of testosterone. Testosterone is is part of um, a female body makeup as well. It's just a lot less. Um, And so when you don't have testosterone, when testosterone's gone, then sex drive for female body people is in the toilet as well. So so we know that testosterone has something to do with it. Um, which would suggest that that's the reason why men traditionally have higher, male-bodied people traditionally have higher sex drives. But it's not all that has to do with it, so it becomes very difficult. How would you define sexual attraction or attraction? I mean, attraction is who it is you want to have sex with. So when we talk about sexual orientation, we're talking about who you're attracted to. Who do you want to have sex with? Not who do you, how do you identify yourself? It's who do you want to have sex with? Um, and for some people, that has to do with gender. So somebody who's heterosexual desires to have sex with somebody from the opposite gender. Somebody who is homosexual, it's same sex. That's who they want to have sex with. But 
as I said, you know, somebody who is um, on the dominant submission scale, which is where I am, if they're on the submissive side, they want somebody dominant. That's who they desire. If they're on the dominant side, they want somebody submissive. That's who they desire. Um, people who are asexual don't experience sexual attraction in that way. So there's a whole scale for asexuality. So it's quite complicated these days in terms of orientation, how you identify. But when you talk orientation, you're always talking about who am I attracted to and who do I want to have a sexual relationship with? What's the difference between asexual and hypersexual? Well, hypersexual is somebody who wants to have sex all the time um, or is or is sexually attracted all the time. They may not want to have sex all the time, but they may find themselves attracted to people all of the time. So they're experiencing that sense of attraction a lot. Um, whereas asexual people don't necessarily experience sexual attraction at all. So they may have no desire for partnered sex. They may have no desire for solo sex or both, or a very limited desire. Are these types predicated by design, by environment, or by genes? We don't know. I mean, the answer to that is we don't know. Um, there seems to be genetic component to sexuality, because um, if you look in families, you'll see variations in families. So you'll see some families with very little variation, and you'll see some families with lots of variations. Um, uh, it's easy. It's easiest to trace gay people down down families because that's something that's been talked about a lot. Whereas tracing kinky people down families is a little bit harder because it hasn't been talked about a lot. But it's interesting watching people who discover their kink go back and look at their parents and their grandparents and aunts and uncles and pick up signs that they now recognize were about kink, which they would not have recognized as a child and go, actually, there were other kinky people in my family. But we, you know, the research isn't there. Um, and I talk about this a lot on talks. You know, one of the things that we need to be careful of is relying on research because there isn't a lot of good research that is uh, representative because, A, we haven't had much time to do it, B, we don't get funding to do it, and C, people don't like to answer questionnaires about sex. How will we solve that? Would it take a, a widespread amount of sexuality role models, per se? I guess. I don't know how we're going to solve that. I mean, first, we have to solve the way that we do research anyway, because um, there are a lot of areas where research isn't adequate, but people think it is. And people make decisions on the basis of inadequate research. Although a lot of decisions made on correlational research, which is relationship between two things, but it doesn't say what the relationship is. You can't tell. So um, I could find that there's a relationship between the sunshine and people um, wanting to jump up and down every day. So what? What does that mean? I can't tell you that by looking at the research. I can just tell you there's a relationship and it's it's a mathematical, it's a statistical relationship. For the group of people that I saw, there was a statistical relationship, but, but it doesn't actually mean anything. But when I say that, everybody laughs because that's silly. But I talked about one study during um, um, my talk, which was a study that was done on... Um, Facials, which is the cum shot, right, in, in, a, in a porn movie, the cum shot. So when a man ejaculates over somebody's face. Um, and um, this study purported to say that there was, um, that people who involved themselves in this on both sides 
so the one who was doing the ejaculating and the one who was receiving the ejaculate on their face, um, were sexually more confident than people who didn't. Now, first of all, sexual confidence wasn't described and it's not operationalized, so we don't even know what that means. So we just set that aside for a second. Who was in this study? I mean, this is a big claim to make, right? That this is a good thing for you to do because it's going to improve, somehow improve your sexual performance and confidence in the future. Well, the study was um, all of the subjects were college students. So there's a problem right there because they're a specific type of person, college students. They're not as diverse as other people. It's not representative at so all. it's not representative at all. But where were the college students from? Well, they were all from Idaho. You can't get much whiter than Idaho. <laughs> so we now have middle class to upper middle class white youth between the ages of 18 and 24. All educated. All educated. And that's who we're making this statement about. But there's still that's still a small subset of educated middle-class youth, right? To make that kind of a sweeping statement with a piece of research that is not in any way representative is frightening, but we do it all the time. We do it all the time and people make policy from stuff like that without understanding that the research isn't representative or there's not enough people in the research, even when it is stratified. Um, and so it's not even how do we get more and more research? It's, I feel like we ought to start back at stage one, which is how do we get research to start with? And B, how do we teach people to understand what, what the research is, what you're looking at? Before we talk about what research we need for sex and sexuality. I mean, I think we need basic stuff because we don't even have that at this point. Given that this field of study is still kind of categorized as taboo, do you think a lot of this research is optimized for headlines and clickbait as well? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's what happens when people do a study um, and you know, getting funding is difficult and a lot of things are taboo and they won't be funded. Like if I wanted to do a research study tomorrow, on the horrors of pornography, I could get as much funding as I want. But the research actually doesn't show that pornography is horrible. The research doesn't bear out the, the headlines and stuff. In fact, the research often bears out that it's, you know, it's good entertainment. It doesn't cause the problem. Sometimes it's a, it's a stress relief, right? So, but again, like if I went and presented myself to a funding body and said, I'm really concerned about, you know, the overuse of pornography and what it's doing to people's relationships. I could get funding tomorrow. If I said I actually wanted to understand what pornography does without any of that negativity, right? Without any of the preconceived notion, I wouldn't get a penny. Really? Mm -hmm. So if I were to ask you as an expert in this field, what your perception of pornography is, what would you say? Pornography is entertainment, and the biggest mistake that people make is thinking that it's something else. It's not education, so there are a lot of people who use it as education. It, it, you're going to fall afoul, right, because it doesn't actually show you what to do, um, and it isn't even what you think you're looking at. But remember, it's entertainment, just like when you watch a TV show or you don't see everything that goes on in order to make the scene that you're making, right? The same is true with pornography. You don't see all that goes on in the background. You don't see the fluffers. You don't see, okay, for those of you who don't know, the fluffers are the ones who try and help the um, 
male-bodied people get erections and keep erections. I didn't even know that was a job. Oh, yeah, it's a job. You didn't know it was a job. See, that's a good thing I decided to say this. Yes, that's a job because because it's not easy keeping an erection over many takes in front of a bloody camera. And studio lighting like this. And studio lighting and funny positions in order to get the shot. Now, there's there's more natural pornography these days. You see a lot of at-home stuff, but you don't get the same kind of shot. So people will always go back to the more professionally produced stuff because they want the genital shots they want to be able to see. Well, that takes actually some pretty uncomfortable body positions. And people are probably learning lines and doing hair and makeup and all those other things that would come with a traditional yeah, movie set absolutely. or Netflix series. Absolutely. So you've got all of that going on and you've got people trying to be engaged with this person that they've maybe just met, maybe not worked with before. Um, sometimes somebody who isn't even their sexuality and, um, you know, they, they have to have, um, erections and I mean, it's a little bit easier for female body because lube is lube and lube will work, you know, and lube makes you look wet. And so even if you have none of your own lubrication, you'll have some of that, but still, you know, you want, you want them to look a certain way. And so there are other changes that people with female bodies have to go through, um, you know, color changes and bleaching and all sorts of shit that people do. That's completely unreal um, in order to create this, this form of entertainment. So there's that. And it's important to remember that that's what you're watching. You're not watching real sex. You're watching entertainment, period. Um, there's nothing wrong with pornography in and of itself. It becomes problematic if it's not ethical, i.e. people are being exploited. So we put that on the side. Some people are exploited and that's not okay. But there are people who make this their career I know quite a number of them, um, and they're quite happy to be making this their career. And in my worldview, they have a right to work with what they've got, right? It's their body if that's what they wish to do. Um, and um, it can help people to explore desire because it can present alternate scenarios. Um, it can help you open a conversation with a partner about something you've been a bit shy to talk about because you can watch something together and go, you see that thing over there? I'd like to try to move towards that? Or what did you think of that? You can kind of get a first sense of what your partner is. It's also great for people who are just wanting to masturbate quickly um, because they want to go to sleep, right? Or they just want some solo time and they want a visual stimulus because it's a visual stimulus. Let's be clear. Most people turn the volume down and don't listen to any words. And they, they skip halfway through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they skip to the bits they like. It's a visual stimulus. That's all it is. Um, can it be overused? Of course it can. Anything can be overused. Do people get addicted? Absolutely not. Addiction is a medical term and it's pretty specific. Nobody goes through withdrawal from stopping porn. And the addiction model of treatment is absolutely not useful with something that isn't in fact an addiction. Do people get compulsive about it? Yes, they do. That's an anxiety thing. And so you should be treating it like an anxiety thing. And there's a load of good information about how to treat compulsive sexual activity. Um, and um, one of the best known people in the field is a man called Silva Nevis. Fantastic. Um, and he does books for professionals, but he also does things that are um, more approachable. And even his books for professionals are approachable, to be fair. Um, and so it's worth looking his stuff up. He does Instagram um, and he talks about this. And um, uh, David Lay is a bit more controversial in the United States. He's another person that talks about this. 
Um, again, well worth looking at his stuff. Um, there's just no evidence that, that, that this is an addictive disorder. And I, it really makes me annoyed when people try and stick it in that category, because what it leads to is treatment that is not only not useful, but sometimes damaging. It was really refreshing to hear someone, I think you must be the first person I've ever heard talk about like the positives of pornography, the utility of pornography. That was really nice to, to hear. One of the thing, questions I had for you around the intersection between pornography and kink and fetish, I wanted to know, did the porn categories come before the kinks and fetish or did the kinks and fetish inform the categories? I know, the, 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 categories came, the categories came after. The kinks and fetishes have always been there. You know, people have always been kinky and they've always had fetishes. That's changed over the years. Um, I mean, so, for example, um, you know, oral sex many years ago was considered a kink. Um, sodomy in the United States and oral sex and anal sex are both considered sodomy. Sodomy is anything that is not penis and vagina, right? Um, but those categories, um, it, it was illegal in almost all the states in the United States was also illegal here in the United Kingdom uh, is still illegal in some states in the United States. Don't ask me which ones I don't remember, but, but it is. Um, and oral sex was considered odd and unusual. And it was something that, you know, there was stuff about how do you ask your partner to do this weird kinky thing, right? These days, even anal sex is considered commonplace. There are, there are so many people that are regularly engaged in anal sex that we don't even really look at it as kinky anymore. Spanking has become so popular since Fifty Shades of Grey. God help me. Um, you know, those books were so poorly written <laughs> and had so many really negative myths, but they were accessible because they were romance novels. That's what they are, guys. They're romance novels, so they were accessible to so many people that um, people would bring things out and try it. And spanking is the most accessible piece, so people have been trying it. So many people, when you do research, and again, we say we know that research isn't the greatest, but when you do research, so many people acknowledge and admit that they do spanking as part of their routine that it's almost not even considered kinky anymore because it's like almost a third of respondents in surveys are admitted to spanking on occasion. So it's it's almost considered normal now, whereas 10 years ago, very kinky, right? This is a question I've been dying to ask you. What are things that are, in your opinion, what are things that are classified by society as kinky now that you think will be normal in 10 years? Oh God. Well, that's a really hard one. Um, because some of the things that are, I mean, cause a lot of the things that are classified like, well, right now, I, I, I hope this one isn't true. Um, the idea of, of breath play and choking is very popular right now. It's been in the popular media for some time. Unfortunately, young teens, um, watching TikTok have had examples of people doing this. Um, it's incredibly dangerous. And so as a kink, it's one of those ones that's actually an expert level kink, right? If you're um, somebody who um, skis, you know, this is a black diamond level, right? <laughs> black belt yeah, in karate. Black belt in karate. I mean, you know, it, it really is. Um, it's something you really need to be incredibly careful with. However, um, it's seen in the media so much that I wouldn't be surprised if that would be considered less kinky down the road, at least until there are more accidents. So, yeah. Um, what else do I think in 10 years won't be? as kinky. Um, Cross-dressing may not be considered as kinky in 10 years time, um, because I think that there are more people who have come out of the closet recently, who are beginning to come out of the closet, who are saying, I'm not trans, I just like to cross-dress. So they, there's more space for that because there's more space 
for trans people, despite all the prejudice and what have you, there's still more space. And because there's more space to talk about different gender presentations, um, there is more space to talk about um, the, when that becomes sexualized. So uh, uh, it may be that cross-dressing will be considered less kinky down the line. I'm making an assumption here. Because, uh, I'm making an assumption here as a young 24-year-old man, so I don't have much experience in reflecting on what has been normal and abnormal. But one thing that I've seen popularized on social media is age play, like mommy and daddy. Would you say that's not has been normalized now, or has that been kind of around it's for still a while? not normalized? And the reason it is still not normalized is because there's a wide variety of how age play happens. And so, you know, there's there's the leather version of age play, which is really about somebody. Um, it's non-sexual. So you've got a daddy and a and a boy, but that's an it's not that relationship isn't sexualized. It's about structure and things like that. And then there's the sexualized part, and that skirts too close to abuse. And so I doubt that will ever be normalized. Um, I think too many people will um, associate that with um, promoting some form of abuse, not recognizing that, of course, you're talking about two adults who are role playing. And um, I hope um, people involved in this world will not come at me for using the term role playing. And remember the show that I'm on, because I'm not going to go into a 20 minute discussion about <laughs> what's actually going on. But so, but you're, but what you're, what I'm saying is that you don't have any children there, right? So there isn't an adult and a child there. It is a role that people are taking on. Um, but I still think that that will push too many buttons to ever be normalized. Um, what I do think will be normalized though, is more um, restraint because shibari has become very popular. What's shibari? Japanese rope and um, Japanese rope bondage is very beautiful. Um, you have to learn how to do it. It takes a long time. Um, for some people, it's very exciting. Not for me, but for some people, it's very exciting. It's very slow. And I find the slowness problematic. Um, and um, I think that in some, and you know, holding people's wrists and, you know, holding people down, you see more depictions of this. I think that may become more normalized over time. One thing that I always see clickbaited and and media headlines is where people are sexually attracted to inanimate objects. Is that healthy or safe in your opinion? Well, I, I mean, if there's something out exists out there, someone's attracted to it. Is it safe? Well, as long as the inanimate object doesn't do anything that's not safe, right? Like a like frag a, grenade or something. A what? A grenade. Yeah, like if it's like a grenade or it's going to blow up on you or it's going to cut your appendages or things like that, then it won't be safe. Otherwise, as long as you're not having to steal it and break the law in order to get the object, who cares, right? Um, healthy? Well, that's that's a different thing. I mean, is it healthy? There's nothing unhealthy about it unless you're not able to make relationships with other human beings. If you're not able to form relationships with other human beings, um, that will be problematic at some point. You may not form sexual relationships with other human beings, and that's not necessarily unhealthy. It's not usual, it's not common, but it isn't considered unhealthy because um, we do have a whole bunch of asexual people and they don't form sexual relationships with other human beings. So if your relationship is with an object, then it's a fetish, right? 
I don't want to be someone on a podcast that lambasts pornography, but does pornography ever have the same effect where people watch too much porn whereby they can't form real life intimate relationships or have replaced that with an easier dose of what might feel like intimacy? I think that that it's not pornography, it's it's all media. Um, and I think it's ridiculous to localize it to pornography. I think social media does that more than pornography because you're actually in, you actually have the opportunity to interact with the object of your of your fantasy. Um, whereas in pornography, you don't have the opportunity to interact unless you're talking about cam girls, and that's that's actually sex work, right? So you're interacting with the sex worker. So I think that there are people who have no social skills um, and who may have social anxiety and may have crippling social anxiety. Um, who will choose to form relationships with um, that, that are from a distance. So with a cam girl, with a sex worker that they don't have to be in the same room with, right? Um, or with um, someone on OnlyFans, for example. Again, they're not having to be in the same room with. Um, and um, with people on social media that they're interacting with via D DM because they, they, they don't have the skills to form that relationship. But that's not localized to sexual um, media. It's all media that allows us the ability to have this false belief of intimacy with somebody that we've never actually met. Do you have any concerns around AI or machine learning ever replacing intimacy or affecting intimacy? I mean, I, you know, AI is affecting everything right now. Um, although, you know, AI written articles are not the same as person written articles. You know, if you look at them, um, Carefully, it's quite frightening. You know, everybody says how great they are, but actually um, there are tip-offs that you'll see regularly, you know. Um, using AI as a starter is useful. And to me, sex feels like somewhat of an expression, much like writing a poem or writing stand-up comedy or sure. writing a song. If you try and ask ChatGPT or AI to write you a song or stand-up comedy set, it simply can't in the same way that a human would. Well, I can imagine it's the same for well, they sexual expression. Yeah, they can't do sexual expression in the same way. I mean, although we do have sexual robots that are pretty damn um, convincing. But really? again, they only have a certain range because human expression is so detailed and human sexual expression even more so. And what constitutes intimacy even more so that dolls and, and robots are not convincing past a certain point. We're not at the point where we have an android that's 100% human convincing. Although we might get there, we're not there yet. So no, I don't worry about AI um, replacing intimacy because it requires an interaction that is can be quite subtle. And I don't think AI has that level of subtlety in, the, in, in, in conversation and in interaction. And of course, once you have a person there, once you're looking at something, then it really doesn't work. I knew this podcast would go kind of off track based on my own curiosities and uh, okay. uh, questions, but to kind of rein it back into to kind of some of the questions I prepared, I want to ask, are kinks and fetishes the same thing or are they different? They're different. So um, a fetish, it actually has a specific meaning. So we talk about fetish in the vernacular by saying, oh yeah, she has a shoe fetish because she has loads of shoes and she loves shoes or... Um, you know, all sorts of things are called fetishes. But an actual fetish is when somebody needs the particular stimulus. So it can be an object. Um, it can be leather or latex or um, it can be a high-heeled shoe or 
It can be a particular smell or um, a particular action in order to achieve orgasm. They need it to achieve orgasm. If it isn't present, they will not achieve orgasm. Um, and so um, if it isn't present with their partner, they'll have to fantasize in order to achieve orgasm. That's a fetish. It's a really specific definition. Mm. Whereas a kink is anything that is considered out of the ordinary that turns you on. So if you like leather in sex, but it doesn't have to be present for you to reach an orgasm, then it's a kink. But if leather needs to be present for you to reach an orgasm, then it's a fetish. And in that way, we also talk about when I talk about orientation versus a kink. In an orientation, it has to be present. So for me to have a sexual relationship with somebody that's going to go anywhere, there has to be dominance. Otherwise, I just don't get I just don't get that level of arousal that I need and I would have trouble with orgasm. Does our upbringing or early experiences dictate our kinks and fetishes or is that a misconception? It's a misconception. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Like there is nowhere in my upbringing where I can localize and I use myself because it's easy and I've got tons of clients where this is the case too. Um, keeping in mind, I've been working with people for 35 years, so I've got a large subject pool. <laughs> um, there is nowhere in my upbringing that explains the the particular um, kinks that I have. There's no incident that I can tell you about. You know, um, sometimes um, English folks will talk about you know having gotten six of the best at school and now they have a fetish for canes. And some people can do that, but for the vast majority of people, they can't localize where the kink came from. Um, what it's much more, I think, complicated as to how upbringing plays into it. Upbringing may be what triggers off a kink, right? So it's not a specific thing, but the um, the environment that allows a certain degree of privacy or that allows you access to something that that then starts your fantasy running or something like that. So we don't we don't know. And as I said earlier, we do believe that some of this may run in families. Um, and again, then it's, does your environment tick it off or not tick it off? You know, because um, it's the same with homosexuality. There isn't a gay gene. There's a series of things. And then it seems to, then it seems to turn on or it doesn't turn on. So um, it's complex and we don't really have enough information at this point. It's like the same reason why you prefer cheese and onion crisps to salt and vinegar. You just do. You just, just do. You just That's do. exactly what it is. Um, and so it's not really useful to go down the path of trying to figure out where did this come from and why, um, particularly because most people who do want to do that are want to do that because what they want often is to get rid of whatever it is. And it just doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. You can be really aversive and it still doesn't work. So it's much better task to become comfortable with who you are than it is to try and get rid of something that seems to just be a preference that you have. It seems like in most other aspects of life, people's preferences come from interaction with those preferences. But if they haven't tried many things, they won't ever know if they like it or not. If there's a listener here who might be quote unquote air quotes vanilla and want to express themselves or find what they might actually like based on listening to this podcast, how would you advise someone to explore these Facets. Well, erotica is one of the best ways to start exploring these facets. There's some there's some really crap writing out there, but there's also some really good writing out there. There's 50 Shades of Grey, including the crap writing. Yes, it is. Um, if you really want to explore 
um, um, BDSM and um, kink um, authors like Cecilia Tan, who writes fantasy and science fiction that's got lots of BDSM and kink in it. Um, um, Midori writes some beautiful stuff. Um, Laura Antonu wrote some fantastic stuff. Um, so there are, there are a wide variety of people I can point people to um, that can explore all sorts of different types of kink and, and, um, and BDSM and fetish. Um, there are collections of short stories and that's a great way. Um, if you don't particularly like reading to yourself, reading out loud to a partner is fun. There's also a lot of um, auditory porn now. Um, so you can get podcasts where people are reading erotica um, and talking erotica. I did one for a, a while where I read some of mine and, and had my favorite authors come on and read theirs, um, which was fun. Um, and it's still out there, I'm sure. Um, so if you put my name in and you put erotica, you'll probably come up with the podcast. Um, but there are loads of different ways of doing it. And the reason I'm not starting with porn is because porn tends to get very specific very quickly. This gives you an opportunity to get a feel for an area and decide, is there a buildup here or is there not? Um, because most of this stuff, in, in the best sex engages anticipation and it gauges um a little bit of mystery. And so pornography often takes all of that away. So try erotica first is what I would say. Um, there's also a lot of movies out there that are very erotic, but not pornographic. Um, I have a list of 101 of them that are not X-rated because somebody asked me once years ago, I don't want to watch X-rated movie. Is there anything I can watch? Well, there's a ton of stuff out there. Um, some of them are foreign films. Some of them are not. Some of them are awful, some of them are fabulous, but they all give you a little bit of a different flavor. Um, and so it's worth doing a, a wide variety of things. Go to a class, go to a talk, um, go see a burlesque show. Perhaps even listen to a podcast like this. Listen to a podcast. Do a lot of things if you're wanting to explore and just be open to your own responses. So doing it is the one thing, but the second bit is, is being able to recognize when you're responding. So be open to your own responses. Does this titillate you? Does this turn you on? Are you having a reaction? What does that reaction look like? Um, take some notes for yourself. All of that before you even ever dip a toe in and try and do something. Fantastic advice. I want to curtail back to Fifty Shades of Grey. I had a gentleman called Rory Sutherland on the podcast. I'm not sure if you've came across his work before. He's a behavioral scientist. And my most viral clip today of the podcast is him giving his view on Fifty Shades of Grey and why, why they got it wrong or how they got it wrong because he said that Christian Grey would have been more submissive in nature because his job was so dominant. Not necessarily. That's uh, that's the biggest fucking, excuse me. That's why well, I wanted I, to ask I, you. I actually swear. So um, That's okay. You, you've gotten through three quarters of this podcast without me swearing. Um, that's the biggest fucking myth there ever was. Yes, it is true that there are a lot of dominant people who prefer to be submissive, submissive in bed because it gives them a break from their dominance. But there are just as many dominant people who take that dominance from their work right into the bedroom. So that's rubbish. It's utter rubbish. Sorry, um, Rory. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm sorry. I mean, it it is it is true. The stereotype is there because there is some truth, but it certainly isn't across the board. Um, I'm, I'm probably a great example of somebody who's dominant in the world and not in the bedroom. Um, but I, equally... Um, there are other people I know like me who are dominant 
in the world and in the bedroom. And then there are people who are submissive in the world and submissive in the bedroom. You can't make that leap. Um, and besides, it's about control. It's not about dominance. What's the difference? In many ways. Well, dominance is the person who's got the power. But a lot of what you what how people choose their position is about who has the control. So it, who has the power is an interesting question and an important one, but also who has the control. And so the reason, and even this is crazy, right? The reason that they have Christian Grey in this role is because supposedly he was abused and this is his way of controlling his environment. And that's why he's dominant, right? Because he's not going to let anything happen to him like happened to him before. Um, again, the, the one of the reasons I hated it was the assumption that his abuse was the reason for his kink, which is just the, the research on that just doesn't prove out. You know, we have about the same number of people who have abuse backgrounds as the general population. So, um, but understanding that research is limited, but um, you can understand how somebody who has had, who has had people control them and has had bad experiences might want to try and control what happens in the environment. So, um, in his business, that may also be a feature, like hit the power and the control are related. But in his sexuality, it really is about preventing bad things from happening rather than letting go. And because rather than what your other guest would have said was because he's got that power and control all the time, now he wants a break. Well, he doesn't have the capability of having a break. And they actually... That's one part of the story she builds up very well, even though we all disagree with it. And we all say, for fuck's sake, stop saying that everybody who's involved in this has been abused. But you can understand his control, his desire for control based on his early history. And so it isn't actually related to his business. Thank you, Dr. Laura, for breaking that down. I will not be prescribing Fifty Shades of Grey in the show notes below, that's for sure. <laughs> and I think the problem that I have with Fifty Shades of Grey is while it's eminently re readable, what it does do, well, to some people, to some authors, <laughs> myself included, it's clanging in various places. Um, but what it does do is it perpetuates some stereotypes and myths that are not useful at all. Um, and so that is why I don't recommend it to people because... It, you don't need those stereotypes and myths. And also then people go out and they think, you know, they, they have these really bizarre ideas based on the characters in the story. I'm like, look, guys, there is no billionaire out there <laughs> looking for someone in this way. If there's a billionaire out there that's dominant, I guarantee you he finds his people in other ways. Um, though there are plenty of non-disclosure agreements out there in the world. <laughs> oh. Beyond immersion into erotica, I've heard you talk about someone's gateway into this landscape as perhaps using an all-day date. Well, to, you to, oh, that to, was that was for masturbation actually. Was for my oh okay. That was what I was talking about. I'll I'll get to that in a minute. I talked about munches, and then one gateway into this landscape is to go to a munch, and a munch is. Um, an event that is held usually at a restaurant or a bar where kinky people show up in their normal everyday clothes and have normal conversations. It's a meet and greet, and it's a way to kind of get to know a little bit about the people within your local community and scene, and so you can see that there are ordinary people just like you. 
Um, and so it feels like a safer way because people aren't dressing up. They're not sitting there talking about sex all day. You're not going to run into their uh, seeing their kinks and things in public. It's just ordinary conversation. So that's a great gateway. Mm. The all day date that we were talking about, that was Dr. Martha Tara Lee's recommendation about masturbation, which is um, we talked a lot about the fact that masturbation is something that people often do um, as a kind of quick thing before they go to bed. It's a quick and dirty thing. They don't take their time. They don't really look at what turns them on. It's just, you know, um, when actually it's one of the best ways to figure out what turns you on is to take your time with yourself. And it's also one of the best ways to learn your best ways to have an orgasm. And you should have more than one way to have an orgasm because if you only have one and you get injured, then you're stuffed. So it's one of the best ways is to explore your own body. And May is masturbation month. So it's a good time to be talking about this. And so Dr. Martha Tara Lee recommends you spend the whole day with yourself and take yourself on a whole day exploration date, which I think is fabulous. Um, and so you spend the whole date being sensual or sexual with yourself. That's that's what you do for the day. Um, the people have baths and they, um, they experiment with sex toys and they um, view erotica, they listen to it, they read it. Um, and eventually they might start playing with orgasms, but initially they just take their time exploring their bodies and looking at what turns them on where and what kind of touch turns them on or all sorts of um, ways of getting to know yourself, which is really valuable because you can then tell your partners what you like. That's such a nice lesson in narrative. When I look online, it's maybe the algorithms that I see because I'm a straight white guy from Glasgow, I see narratives such as masturbation as another form of procrastination. I've never really heard someone give that practical advice before. And I'm so glad I could use this platform to normalize that. And, and it is, you know, so, you know, the vast majority of us masturbate. But the vast majority of us masturbate is like an afterthought, right? You know, you're horny and you don't have a partner, you masturbate. And it's like something that people do often that's shameful. Well, that's, that's, you know, if, if you think sex with yourself is shameful, how are you going to view sex with someone else? I think that's a make drop moment for me. <laughs> how must or how could someone explore or at least communicate their kinks and fetishes with their beloved partners if they haven't had that conversation yet? So if you haven't had the conversation and you have had these kinks and fetishes since you met the person, that's the hardest one, right? Because you've had however long with this person where they think you are a certain way sexually when you actually have a whole part of you that you've not disclosed, which to them will feel like you've hidden. Um, and so if you don't feel brave enough to start the conversation, bring them to a talk like the talk that I did, um, the Psychology of Fetish and Kink, which I'm still doing in various places in the UK at the moment. Um, listen to a podcast, watch something, read erotica, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, um, let's have, let's do bedtime stories. It can be sexy to do bedtime stories. You pick a story to read to me. I'll pick a story to read to you. Indirect ways. And then you can watch your partner's response. And if they're like, Ugh, then you know you're going to have a harder time. But if they're looking a little interested, then you can gently start a conversation. Maybe after a couple of different stories, maybe after a couple of forays that are kind of non-committal. You can gently start a conversation. If you're too anxious about it, come see someone like me. There's, I mean, I do this. I have a, um, 
a service, which is a two hour breakthrough session, that that's often what this gets used for, which is, you know, people come so I can facilitate the conversation. Sometimes it just helps to have a third person there facilitating the conversation, dealing with the emotional reaction that your partner may have of feeling like you haven't been honest with them about who you are. It's awfully difficult if you have kinks that are really important to you and you have an existing partner and they turn out not to be your partner's cup of tea, then there's a problem to be dealt with. So I do usually recommend, preferably at the beginning of the relationship, if you know you've got kinks, disclose that early. Much like you would disclose every other preference. Absolutely. You know, people somehow think that they talk, they want to talk about whether you have kids or not, where you want to live, you know, what kinds of places to live, what kinds of activities are essential and important. You know, I have dogs, you need to have dogs or like dogs, you know, all of those things they disclose at the beginning and they eliminate potential partners on the basis of these really important things. And they figure they don't talk about sex till six months down the road when they're already attached. When actually, if somebody's not sexually compatible with you, you want to know that up front because that relationship does not have legs. Oh. I want to make this full circle by almost ending on health and safety. Hmm. How can someone who's in a relationship maintain and set and maintain healthy boundaries, especially when some of these kinks and uh, fetishes might be, like breath play could be very dangerous. How can someone... Uh, set and maintain boundaries. I mean, I think you need to you need to set you need to practice setting boundaries. Full full stop. Do not be coerced into something that you do not want to do. In all aspects of life. in all aspects of life, um, it is important to set healthy boundaries. If you set and maintain healthy boundaries, your relationships are much happier. Um, and so we don't really learn how to do that. It's a skill that can be taught. Um, I frequently give classes on it to just get people to start setting boundaries. Because you can learn it and practice it and, and you take it into the rest of your life. There's a whole bunch of skills that I think are really important that I teach a lot um, that I've covered in one of my books, um, which is um, Dancing the Edge to Reclaiming Your Reality. Um, it's essential life skills for gaslighting and trauma victims. And I talk about all the emotional skills and life skills that you need in there that if you grew up in a family where you were gaslit or if you had early childhood trauma you or and mid-childhood trauma, you probably didn't develop. These are skills that you can learn. You can take a class and learn how to reality test. You can learn how to set boundaries. You can learn how to um, risk assess when you're choosing a partner in relationships. They're all skills that, that if you want good, healthy relationships and satisfying relationships, you will do better if you've got them than if you don't. Um, and so I recommend really prioritizing learning those skills, their emotional skills. And there are relationship skills that are so essential, just like learning good communication skills is essential. And don't settle for less. Don't settle for less in your relationships because it just leads to messiness that is um, unpleasant um, at, the, at the mild end and traumatic at the, at the sharp end. I love it. I usually end a podcast with a pragmatic question, which I did there, but I'm going to end my last question with something a bit more, I don't want to call it ridiculous, but why did you, or how did you become inspired by a TikTok to write about a book about wood chopping? Right. So I wrote, um, I wrote a book of erotica called Chopping Wood, um, Shaping Metal and Other Erotic Stories. And um, I, I just, I, there were a few wood choppers 
on TikTok that were so much fun to watch. I mean, so for a while, that's all we did was watch these guys chop wood. Um, and we watched them chop, chop wood because they were thirst traps, right? They looked incredibly sexy when they were chopping wood. So I ended up writing a story about this particular guy who was chopping wood, um, who remains nameless and, and, and uncredited. He's just like a TikTok inspiration. <laughs> and his voice came from someone else. Um, so he, he actually, in, in my story, is a Scotsman, but the original person was not because this the, the voice was Scottish. Um, and the same thing was um, was shaping metal from watching um, uh, watching somebody at a forge. Um, and it was just hot as anything. So I wrote a story about it um, because I get inspired all over the place. So I do, um, most of my writing is nonfiction, but I do occasionally foray into fiction. Um, and my stuff can be found in a variety of places. Um, and, um, some of it's quite intense because I explore really intense fetishes. So, because it's fun for me to do so. After 30 years of doing what you do, if you could go back and speak to young Laurie Beth, who hasn't, who hasn't felt comfortable bringing her whole self to the world just yet, what singular piece of advice would you give her based on your experiences? Hmm. Sorry for taking so deep. No, it's 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 cool. It's just it's it's just there's a couple of things that come to mind immediately, um, and one is you're fine the way you are. You're fine the way you are. Um, you will, you know, continue to grow and change because that's what we all strive to do. I do now. I'm I'm always going to be a work in progress forever, forever. I'll be a work in progress. Um, but if I could have said to her certain things, I didn't need to worry about just just keep working and growing and 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 working on accepting yourself then you'll be fine you're absolutely fine the way you are um that's probably the primary thing i would say and the other thing which is a big one coming from my background um which if people are more interested in knowing about what molded me and the traumatic life experiences that molded me. I do have an erotic memoir out there. It does have some pretty intense erotica in it. It's framed so you get a piece of erotica, a piece of my life story, and then some analysis. Um, so it is not for the faint of heart. Um, but it is out there, and it's called Dancing the Edge to Surrender. And it's amazing. It was an amazing thing to write. I think to be able to say, it won't, it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. And your intuition is actually fine because I was gaslit from trusting my intuition for a very long time. And, um, it was one of the, the skills I had to reclaim. Uh, if I'd known my intuition was fine, I would have avoided some really, um, crappy experiences that were, that did not really teach me very much at all. Uh, most, most horrible experiences teach us something, but you do the same thing two or three times. You don't need to learn it two or three times, usually. Dr. Laurie, I'm so, so proud that you brought those two lessons and all the others that you brought across your 30-year career onto this podcast so selflessly for the listeners and for me. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining me for dinner before this. If I could signpost your work for the listeners, where's best to find you and your work? So the best place to find it is to come to my website, which is drlauriebethbisbee.com. That's the easiest place. If you are a social media person and you prefer social media, on um, TikTok, I'm at Lori Beth UK. And on 
Instagram, I'm Dr. Bisbee. I'm also Dr. Bisbee on Twitter. I don't spend much time on Facebook. I mean, so you can find me on Facebook and you can find a bunch of stuff I've posted over the years, but I tend to spend more of my time on TikTok and Instagram and occasionally on Twitter. So um, just because it's easier, I think. Um, and I'm also on YouTube. So, but the easiest place to find everything is to head to my website. Um, I'm in the shop. My books are in the shop. Um, courses I do are in the shop. And hopefully um, soon there will be an event calendar where you can get links to where I'm speaking because um, I'm doing more and more. Um, and so I'm adding an event calendar to my website so that people can go and buy tickets if that's what they'd like to do. And people can see you on TV too? That's right. Um, the second season of Open House, The Great Sex Experiment is on Channel 4 on Thursday, the 18th of May at 10 p.m. Um, that's episode one for season two. They are posting up the box set. So I think that means that season one will be downloadable. And also, I believe that they're go you're going to be able to stream all of season two if you want to binge watch it instead of watching it week after week. This year, we have eight episodes. Um, on this show, I'm taking couples. They come to my retreat and we help them to open their relationships. That's what I'm doing there. Um, there are some, um, they call them sexually liberated residents. I find it amusing that they keep saying that. But yeah, there are some amazing residents that are there who are there to help these people open their relationships. So basically they come and see me. Um, they tell me about how they were thinking of opening up. We work out, we work through some of the emotional stuff. We look at some of the danger points. Um, and then they have the opportunity to meet people who might want to help with that. Um, after their first night experience, they come back and see me and we go through whatever's gone wrong, whatever's gone right. They get a second night experience and I see them the third day and then they're off to live their lives. Um, it is unscripted. There are no actors. So um, it is pretty amazing all the stuff that people get up to and you get to see all of it. So. <laughs> I can't wait to check it out. Dr. Laura, this has been amazing. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. And that's a wrap, you kinky people. No jokes aside, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee. How shocking, how insightful is the sex education you needed? I am really, really proud of this episode. If you enjoyed it too, please give it a review, give it five stars and share it with your friends and family and those who want to venture into this world and perhaps share it with your partner if you want to open this discussion. Again, I want to send a huge thanks to Laurie, but also this week's sponsors, New Life Gym and Mary Hill. Shout out David Galbraith. And last but not least, our friends over at Vibe. Use code D by D for 15% off site-wide. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I love you all. See you on the next one.